0: Welcome to episode 850 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Radio team, welcome along to episode 850 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsome, Bev and Bevan James Isles. Today is gonna to be a little bit different because unfortunately John had the sad news the other night that his father passed away in his sleep, um, they don't really know what's happened at this stage, it's been obviously a pretty, a pretty horrible time for John and his family, so as a community we're putting all our love and support out to John right now, and I I kind of talked to him yesterday and I said, do you mind me mentioning this on the show, and he, and he kind of sent me a text just saying, it's all good to mention it, he's just saying he was a great supporter of the sport, always helping out at events, marshalling, many barbecues and etc, and let's be honest, John's career has been triathlon and from a very young man he's been in the sport and obviously his parents are being a big part of that and you know it's funny John and I now are in our middle age and you kind of get to that moment where you know parents start to pass away and you know it's that kind of funny time in life and obviously John is experiencing that in a really challenging way right now so or I'm sure your love and support goes out to John right now and um and his family um yeah, it's, it's definitely a very sad time. When John sent a text to me, this kind of he was a great supporter of our sport, always helping out at events, marshalling and manning barbecues and so on. Um, I kind of thought one thing we 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 could use this as an opportunity to kind of thank the people in our world, like in our sport. It's a very selfish sport, and we often think it's a very solo endeavor you know like and 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 a lot of it is like the training we do the effort we put in and um but we do have a lot of people around us who support us in our success and there are the obvious people it might be your coach it might be the people at your triathlon club um there's also many other people who are a big part of your success like i think of my time in the sport and it's my family were just so supportive like i i remember doing mm. I'm in New Zealand and I'm kind of riding out in the middle of nowhere and my mum and dad and my sister would be there, you know, dressed up as some idiots, making as much noise and and I, and I remember just, you know, that when you think of, or at least for me, I think of my time in the sport and I always talk about the highlights of the sport. The sport is that, the, to me, there's always kind of four things I remember. There's the the tough moments, you know, and either the, the tough moments you won or the tough moments that beat you, you know, I, you kind of remember those moments. Uh, the amazing finishes, you know, when you actually achieve a big goal, um, maybe it's only three, <laughs> uh, key events maybe, you know, like when, like I did in Hawaii, but the other thing I, I, I always seem to remember when I think back in my time in any sport is when you're out in the course and your supporters are there for you. And I think of my friends, Duncan and Fraser and Jeff and Kate and my family. And I remember doing the Christchurch Marathon and gym members would come and support me out in the course. I remember the a lady called Sheila. And Sheila was this kind of wild child character. And, um, you know, she saw me running down the road. And she was she, she had seriously like she'd won the lotto. She saw me running down the road. And at times like these, when... You know, when someone in your life passes on, there often is a reflection moment that comes around that, and obviously John will be going through a lot of that right now, and it's it's a very sad time. But I I think it's also a moment that we can use to actually show appreciation to those people in our world who support our sport, and and you don't have to do this, but I you know if you've got the opportunity today as you listen to the podcast and maybe after the podcast because I know a lot of you listen to this when you're out training, send a text to someone, and and send a text to someone who. Who support you and what you do, and, and and make it a great text. You know, don't just say, "Hey, I really appreciate the support you give to my sport." Do that. Do the. Do the show the how. Like, I really appreciate the way that you do this and supporting something that's really important to me. So it might be, I really appreciate the way. Like, I remember when I was doing Ironman, because I was, I was when I remember before I did Ironman Hawaii, I'd broken up with my partner about. Four months before it And so I went back And lived home Because I You know I was just in that beast moment of training And mum and dad said Well why don't you Just come live home And tour the race And then you can kind of um, You can kind of Go back to tra- You know Find a place to live after They definitely didn't Want me to stay long term <laughs> Um, but I remember my dad just took on the responsibility of looking after me. And my mum, my mum and dad, but my dad particularly around my meals, and every day I'd say, What train you do today, son? And I'd get home and he you know what it's like when you're doing like I'm in Hawaii, you can eat like a beast and I'd come home at night and he made me this dinner and you know, and he just put this extra effort in to help me be successful in a goal that he knew was really important to me. And, you know, in this moment if I was in that space, yeah, I could send a text such as saying to my dad, Hey Dad um, I really appreciate the support you, you give to me and I love the way I, every night I get home from dinner or from training and you put all this effort into making a dinner It's going to help me be successful with my goal. Now, it's, you know, like sometimes we just forget to say thank you. And um, and, and, and you know, I don't know John's relationship with his father that well I'm pretty sure they had a good relationship, but um, you know, after the fact, there's often, especially when we have these moments of passing away in our life, is we sometimes think, I oh, wish I'd let this person know this thing, and so, in kind of memory of John's dad, who is obviously a great supporter of John and the sport, and, you know, John puts on great races, he really does, John is... Mate, for for triathlon in our local community, John is so so important. He he obviously is a great athlete, but he puts on kids races. He puts you know in Christchurch, if John Newsom wasn't around, the sport would be in a much worse place. You know, it seriously would. And he really cares about doing good for the sport. Um, and and I'm sure you know he'd be calling because you know it's like if you're a race director, you're, you're calling on everyone in your area just to help you with your races. And and actually interestingly. On Sunday, because I think his father passed away on Saturday night, John had the Oxman, you know, and, he, you know, he had to get up that day and put on an event for our local community. And uh, it was a pretty rough weather day. I was speaking to a girl at the gym this morning, a girl called Ellie, and she was saying, you know, she had a really good race and she was able to have, a, you know, get out there and have a really good race. And without John, that doesn't happen. But also without the people who support John, that doesn't happen as well. And so, in honor of John's dad, um, maybe today pick somebody in your triathlon world who's been a big part of of supporting you and maybe not necessarily just the obvious person although you can do the obvious person and show some appreciation in an extra special way you know and it can just be a text but say the right thing Um, I always think you know it's one thing one thing we think about as humans is a lot of people who struggle to ask for support when they're struggling because they don't want to be a burden and one thing I always talk to people about is that in our times of struggle, asking for support from your from the people who love you and support you is actually a really great thing to do. Not just because it's going to help you through your times of struggle, but actually because it creates a deeper connection between that person and you. Like think about yourself, if one of your best mates were to come up to you and say, hey mate, I'm really struggling, can you support me through this time? Would you think they're a burden? Or would you think, actually, I'm really glad I get to be the person who gets to support this person? And, you know, these moments where we can show the deeper connection is a way that we deepen the bond with the people in our life. And appreciation is a great way to show that connection. And so, again, as a tribute to John's dad, who's obviously brought up this guy who's who's, a legend in the triathlon world, locally New Zealand. And obviously for, you know, you guys, you know, John let's be honest, for this show, John is, is the guru. Um and John, you know, his passion for the sport and, you know, even just look you look at Thomas and you think, you know, like, how cool that his boy's so passionate about moving. Um and it's because John's parented his kids in really good ways. So John's such a good man. So um he hasn't asked me to do this. So I've just kind of thought I wanted to kind of do this. So um today my challenge to you is to choose somebody in your life who supports your love of this sport and show appreciation and show appreciation in a really cool way. It might even be if it is your partner. Let's say you're a man, you've got a wife, it is your wife, buy some flowers. You know, like, just do something that shows a little bit of appreciation because I guarantee two things happen that makes them feel good for supporting you. It'll make you feel good about yourself and actually it'll probably deepen the bond between you two. So... Um, all the love and thoughts go out to John's family, um, it's obviously a tough time for him, he is going to be back next week, um, so he did say that, but yeah, just our love and support goes to him. So because this has happened, today's show is a little bit different, and I'm going to put um, two of my podcasts in, and one of them is basically going to be, I, I did a, a public talk about six months ago in Christchurch, I do a bit of public speaking, and the talk was actually with one of the All Black coaches, so the All Blacks, if you don't know who they are, the All Blacks are... Basically, one of the world's greatest sports teams of all time. We've actually been struggling in the last couple of years, but in rugby, the All Blacks have just been kind of the dominant country for for the history of the sport. Um, and I was i i, I did a, a kind of a, a sit down interview slash kind of talk as a public talk for them and, and they talked about this kind of concept of the all black performance triangle and you, obviously you guys are high performing people so I kind of thought it'd be a really cool chance for me to, talk, to kind of share that podcast with you so the first part of the today's show will be the, the All Blacks Performance tri, um, Triangle, and you can kind of implement that into what you're doing with training. And then I actually recently did an interview um, on my podcast with a guy called, now let me actually, I'm going to pause because I've forgotten his name. So, wait a second, give me a second. His name was Dr. Alan Goodwin. Now, Dr. Alan Goodwin, it was actually a really cool conversation. He's actually, what's really fascinating is he's, he's written a book about how to manage. Getting plastic surgery so you may think this is not it. what a weird thing to have on a triathlon podcast but he was just a really insightful guy and he was really insightful for lots of reasons and um I've got to be honest this is the biggest downloaded podcast I've ever had on my other podcast which I found quite mind-blowing because like you know like it's had a lot of downloads it's been a very successful podcast and but also just he, the way he framed some things, I thought, wow, that's really cool, he was quite an insightful guy, so I kind of thought, you know, because today's show is a little bit different, I thought I'd put this interview up, so basically what's going to happen now is there'll be two segments for my other podcasts, first is the All Blacks Performance Triath- Triangle, and then we're going to have an interview with Dr. Dr. Alan Goodwin, and then I'll come back at the end, actually one thing I haven't done, I should probably do the, the normal thank yous. So, I do want to say thank you to our patrons. Uh, if you are a patron of the show, thank you so much. And I'm going to use the same ones I had last week Barbie, uh, Dinky Dynamo Busseroli, uh, Duncan Danger Pinfold, and Thomas is going long. These are some of the patrons of the show. Uh, if you want to become a patron, go to me So, here are the two the All Back segment and the interview of Dr. Alan Goodwin, and then I'll be back at the end of the show. <laughs> So the All Blacks, so I kind of talked about the, the All Blacks earlier, didn't I? I kind of talked about how they're such a high-performing team and, um, and and interestingly, the ability to pass it on for generation to generation. And I'm going to be talking about the concept I t- introduced before, which is kind of um high performance triangle that the all blacks work around and what i want to do today in the show is i kind of want to introduce a triangle and maybe spend some time thinking about each area and how you can apply this to your own life and one thing i do want to say here because um i was talking to someone the other day actually i was talking to someone who was a little bit disappointed in some athlete who had kind of lost their health post-career who was i talking to i was talking to someone about this they were talking about how um oh yeah there's a there's a rower in New Zealand who, uh, one of the greatest rowers of all time, um, phenomenal athlete, gold medal winner, list, winner um, at the Olympics, phenomenal athlete, and since giving up the sport, has put on weight. I was a, I was a hairdresser. There you go, I was at a hairdresser. I wasn't my normal hairdresser. I was at a hairdresser. Now, where was I? Up in Auckland with a hairdresser? And she was saying she was really disappointed this person had become overweight since giving up their sport. And... Um, I kind of, I had to defend the athlete. Now, the athlete, when I say put on some weight, they've definitely, you know, you, you do notice it. You know, you do notice that this person's, and, and it's probably a little bit of an unhealthy weight. They're not massively overweight, but they put on some weight. And I had to defend the athlete. And the reason I had to defend the athlete is when you go from being a high-performance athlete going to everyday life, it's a massive shift. And, and I want to kind of talk about this before we go into the All Blacks high-performance triangle, because... If you're an Olympic athlete and you're representing your country, there is an infrastructure and systems and everything about your life, as you being, is bringing the best out of yourself. And and the thing about we we often forget about these high performance athletes is that kind of thing of infrastructure. They have an infrastructure around them. That's coaches, um, you know, medical teams. Nowadays, they probably have high performance coaches as well. You know, the team environment, everything about what they do is designed to bring the best out of them. And then what happens is they finish their career and all of that's gone in a second. Like all of that's gone in a second. And it's easy for us to sit on the sideline and be critical of people who come out of those environments and maybe, you know, put on some weight or aren't what they used to be. But we do need to comprehend or understand that these people have gone from being in an environment it's all about this one thing. It's all about training all the time. It's all about bringing the best out of review. Bang, bang, bang. And, you know, in a perfect word, you say, well, hopefully these people leave with the skills and to be able to do that by themselves. But that's a totally different skill set. Actually, interesting. A couple of years ago, I did a talk, just before COVID, I did a talk at one of our... Our local, One of our local private high schools It's a very top end school uh, Parents pay a lot of money to go to the school And when you go to the school You can see where the money goes The kids are amazing They get amazing opportunities um, You know like it, It's an expensive school But it's money well spent And I went to talk to these kids Because one thing I talked to these kids was, Is about There was basically kids who were in the last year of high school The last couple of years of high school And I was talking to them about because they wanted some. some Someone had asked me just to give you some context. Someone had asked me if I could do a talk about training for a half marathon for them as a group, and I wanted to pitch it along the line of one thing you guys need to learn to do is learn how to be independent with exercise in your life. And I kind of talked about this kind of. I didn't really use what I was talking about with that, that athlete before, but. These girls in this school, it's a, it's a girls only school, and it's, again, it's a phenomenal school. Now, these girls, they have so much support and structure around them that helps them be a high performer. You know, and, and not just in sport but in school. So I, I don't know the figures of the school, but I imagine they get better results in schools That you know, you maybe everyday school. Because because the money they their parents spend, there's a higher level of infrastructure and support that goes around these things. They get better coaches, they get more coaches, they get and so on and so on. And my talk to them was about you guys are in the last moment of this schooling period. You've got a year, maybe 18 months to go in this schooling period. And then in a year and eighteen months from now the rug's going to be pulled under from underneath your feet. And you are now suddenly going to be someone who doesn't have the infrastructure around you. Because basically when you go to university, and for those who have been to university, you know what happens. University, you're kind of on your own. Now that's not completely true, you have your, your groups, you have, you know, there are there is a support network in university, but if you've come from a high-performing school with great infrastructure and great systems and great support and, you know, high-level stuff, to university where it's kind of just about yourself, with a little bit of structure and a little bit of support, you have to learn a total new skill set. And this was my talk to these girls, it was like, Signing up for this half marathon is a good challenge for you to do. But really, what you want to do is you want to use it as an opportunity for you to start to develop health and fitness in your life outside of these four walls, outside of this school. Because in the next moment, you're going to be facing that. And and you see this a lot, you know, like I I I, I deal with a lot of you know, my, my target market for my burger running group's kind of 35 through to 55. And most of these And I'll be honest It tends to be more of a female based target market Um, We do get some men But we do tend to get more females And most of these females Would have been females who left school Enjoying fitness in a really good place And then they get into the real world And they haven't developed those independent skills And then other things happen Then you go to university And university's busy And so on and so on So when we And I haven't even touched on the high performance triangle here But one thing we've got to remember is that often athletes are in environments that are designed to make the best of them and then the day they quit their whole life changes and then they no longer have the infrastructure and support around them now the best athletes would have created independent skills to be able to do this and um and as we touch on this all black structure for high performance maybe that's what they're trying to do with in the all blacks nowadays But not everyone is. And so when you see athletes come out of their career, don't be too critical if they're no longer the athlete they were. The other thing to recognize is maybe they just don't want to train like a beast anymore. Like if you've trained for 20 years of your life and you just train, 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 maybe, maybe you don't want to do that. The other thing to recognize as well is that when you're an athlete training like an Olympic rower, you can eat a bit poorly. You know, so you kind of, there are some habits you can get away with because you train so much. So again, I. This is kind of wasn't the subject I was going to talk about, but I'm going to get into it in a second. So going back to the All Blacks, the All Blacks walk into that environment. So if you become an All Black, or even I imagine if you're potential being an All Black, the All Black system is creating an environment that's designed to get the best out of you. Because they need you to be the best performing athlete on the field when your opportunity presents itself. So that's the other thing to think about. Now, let's go to this all-black high-performance triangle. So when you move into the all-blacks, they have a thing called a high-performance triangle. And I'll tell you the basic kind of fundamentals of it. And then I'll kind of break down how I think you can implement this in your own life. So the high-performance triangle says there's three main kind of points to it. And then there's one underlying thing as well. So the first is mindset. The mindset you have in this environment. The second is your skill set. The third is your structure. And then underlining all of this is your well-being. So what are the mindsets that creates that you need to be a high performer? What are the skills that you need? And then what's the structure that helps you bring the best out of yourself? And then underlying all this, how do you maintain good well-being in your life to be a high performer? Now, going back to my thing around from environments, because let's be honest, most of us, don't live in high performance environments You know Most of us get up and go to work And, and you, know, you might have a work that's trying to grow you and stuff But high performance environments Most of us don't work in those So, so I'm kind of looking at this as more of an individual Not a, an environmental thing I'm, I'm, I want you to reflect upon this today As the individual skills that you need to develop yourself To get the most out of this So again it's mindset Skill set Structure And underlying that we have well-being so, I'm going to break down each of these areas. I'm just going to throw some things for you to think about in high performing for yourself. Now, you can kind of bring this into a overall high performing self. So, can I be a high performer in all areas of my life? Or you may want to choose one or two areas of your life where you just want to focus on having high performance. So, it might be a hobby, it might be a sport, it might be a career, whatever. I was going to throw this at you. And this is one of those podcasts that. It could be a bit of a work on. So you might listen to this and you might say, actually, I'm going to grab a piece of paper, grab a workbook, go back and listen to this, work through some of the things that Bevan's talked about here and design a bit of a plan for you around this. So let's touch on it. First of all, mindsets. Now we know what mindsets is and we know the difference between um, fixed mindset and growth mindset. We, we tend to know what that is nowadays, so I won't go too deep into that. Fixed is I can't grow. Growth mindset means I can develop myself in this area. But when we think about the mindsets you need, we want to spend, and if we think about development pathway for you in this, the first thing we want to understand is do you need to spend? where do you spend time in developing this side of you? Now, I've got to be honest, Most people don't spend time on developing mindset ability. Most people don't spend time in developing mindset ability. You know, even like mind tools. Like, I know I've raved on about that chatter tool. I plan in my week, when am I going to use chatter? Like, I plan it. I plan in my day, when am I going to use chatter? Because it's a mind tool, and it's a mindset tool that helps me bring the best out of myself. And Now, most people don't actually work on their thinking strategies. So the first thing to ask yourself is, am I working on my thinking strategies? Okay, so it's worth first thing. Now, if you do want to develop them, I've got some questions for you to think about. First of all, you need to identify the mindsets that work for you. And when we look at this, we're gonna look at this in two ways. When you think about your own mindsets, what are mindsets that you currently hold that are positive and work for you in helping you move towards high performance? Okay. So, what are ones that you currently hold that you know work for you? So, for example, one mindset I currently hold is I'm a hard worker. You know, I, I I'm I'm a hard worker, and I know I can grow. It's a really good mindset to have when I'm thinking about high performance. Also, when we think about mindsets that could work for you, is to spend time to spend time discovering ones that you maybe don't have. And this is and, and all three of these steps mentorship and guidance is a really good thing to think about. So you might want to interview somebody in the area that you know you want to develop yourself in, and just to explore what mindsets they have in these areas. What are their thinking strategies that they have in this area? You know, this is what we want to. You know, this is because you you won't know everything. So the first thing we want to do is, you know what, being a hard worker who knows I can grow—that's a great mindset to have, but. I don't know some other areas. So I'm going to go talk to, I don't know, let's just say running, a great runner and talk to them about what mindsets they have. And what they'll be able to do is open you up to mindsets that you currently can't see, and it's a really good thing to have. The second thing to go is, what are my current mindsets that I have that work against me? What are my current mindsets that I have that work against me? So I'll think of me, I'm on the piano. One of my old mindsets was, I'm not a creative piano player. Okay, that's a mindset. That's working against me being a high-performing musician. So again, those three steps. What are the ones that work for you that you currently have? How do you discover ones that you don't have that you can work on? And which ones are working against you? Now what we want to do is we want to determine the mindsets that we want to be practicing in our life, and particularly when we're doing these activities. So the mindsets that, you know, like, what are the mindsets? So obviously we want to reinforce the ones that you that are good for you, and then you want to be injecting the mindsets that you've learned from other people or mentors that can help you be more successful. And obviously we want to suppress the mindset or work work through the mindsets that are holding us back. The next thing we want to do is we want to put time aside where we're going to practice what or preload the mindsets we're going to use when we experience the activity we want to do. So, interesting, okay, so last week I went for a run, I had to do a a 40 minute minute run, I had to do 30 minutes at moderately hard, Um, and I haven't been doing moderately hard running in a while, and it was also going to be happening at the end of a very busy day, so I was going to be mentally tired and um, going to be challenged within that. So I didn't just get up and go for my run, I gave myself five minutes, I remember I drove to the park. And then before I got out of the car, I just gave myself a couple of minutes, I said five minutes, it probably took me a minute or two, just to preload the mindsets and the attitude and the thinking that I was going to have in this run. Now, I, I nailed the run, I had a really good run. Um, but the thing was, I practiced and I spent time preloading the thinking that I was going to put in place at this time. And that's what we want to think about is, you, you, you don't want to hit the moment and go, with oh, the mindset? We wanna commit a time where we're gonna practice and preload the, how we're gonna use our mindsets at that time. Okay. So and this is probably an important step. We'll talk about this when we get to structure. If we're gonna if we're gonna develop our skill of mindset, we have to put the time aside to be able to develop that skill. Secondly, or number four I think it is, is in the moment, learn what you're when you when you're actually experiencing the thing you're trying to do. So again, let's go back to me last Tuesday. When I'm doing the run, practice the mindset. And, and, and make it a really conscious process. And you're kind of doing a couple of things right here. First of all, you're practicing the mindset that you've preloaded and you've identified that you're trying to work on. Secondly, you're also trying to see if your other mindsets that work against you are coming in place and which ones you'd want to, to put in place at this time. So you, you know, let's just say me being creative on the piano, You know, I, I, okay, today my mindset I'm going to have when I practice on the piano is I'm developing my ability to write basic songs. Okay. That's, a, that's a good mindset to have and it opens me up to developing writing basic songs um, and then I'm kind of jumping with the piano and I feel that oh but you're not a creative person come up that's a catch moment what do I do I redirect my focus back to oh okay well don't worry about that thought right now just put your mindset back to I'm developing my ability to write basic songs okay so see what you're doing there, and that's when I'm actually on the keyboards doing the practice So within that time, that's what you're focusing on is when I'm experiencing the thing, try to be in the mindsets that I preloaded and just be aware of when my actions or my thinking is taking me to a mindset that can work against me. Then what we're going to do is post the experience. We want to look for the moments that worked, for evidence that we can reinforce, and just any learnings that can help us get better in this mindset. So it might be... um, I, one learning I learned was I, I did go to that place where I was feeling about, you know, you're not creative on the piano, and I did work through it. I did go to that place where I found the better mindset again, but I probably sat in the, in the restrictive mindset for five minutes. So next time, one thing I want to work on is less time and a mindset that's working against me. Secondly, when you're doing that post reflection, I love the idea of attaching evidence to mindset. You would have heard me talk about this before. It's that whole idea of, um, you know, at the end of the piano session or at the end of the run last week. I once I've had the run, I've hit the objective of the run. I can go. This here is evidence of the mindset I preloaded. So, and again, if I do the piano, uh, so let's say I've kind of partly written a beginner basic song. This here is evidence of the mindset that I am developing my ability to be a, a basic songwriter. Okay, so this is what we want to think around with mindset. And I think one of the key things I really want you to take away from this aspect is it should be a skill that you're practicing. Okay, it should be a skill that you're practicing. And the biggest fault I think most people have is they don't put do that preload time. They don't actually spend a bit of time before they're doing the activity practicing their mindsets. Okay, so again, identify. so I'll just walk you through those steps again. First of all, it's a thing you need to develop. You've got to find the mindsets that work against for you, discover ones that can be more effective that you don't know, also learn the ones that will work against you. Before you do the activity, give yourself some time, again, this may be one of the most important steps, to practice putting that mindset in place or preloading that mindset. When you're in the activity, practice staying in that mindset, catch when you go back to old ones and go back to new one. and then post, attach the evidence, reinforce what you did well, and just see if there's anything you could work on. Like, if you think about yourself right now, do you think you'd be better in in having great mindsets in your life if you put this process in your life? And if we go to high performance, if you can be using high performance more often, surely that would be the case. The next area they talk about is skill set. Now, when we think about skill sets as a rugby player, it's pretty obvious. You know, depending on the position you're playing in the field, there's going to be different skills that are, are prioritized. In your position, and again, different positions require different skills. Like, like a, a number ten or a halfback uh, who kicks the ball and passes the ball and runs fast, and you know, high kind of those kind of skills don't need to know about scrumming. You know what I mean? Like they don't need to know how to be a prop, and a prop doesn't have to spend time doing kicking. So, the first thing is when we think about skill sets, I always think we want to do a skills assessment, and when you think about the area that you're working on. So a skills assessment will break down all the different skills that you would want to develop in this area based on what's important to you. Okay, so you wanna do a skills assessment. And this is another one of those areas where you wanna get a mentor beside you or a coach beside you. Because when we think about the skill set you're trying to develop, you'll already have some skills and you'll have some strengths and you'll have some weaknesses, but you may also have some areas you just don't even see. And that's the value of a mentor and a coach. Or a coach is that they they just they they know more than you so they can give you a better guidance of that so the first thing we want to do is do a skills assessment of all the different skills that are in your area okay now when you do the skills assessment you can also do um oh, no, I'll go to that in a second then what you want to do is you want to create a create a understanding of the skills you need for success and this is you know like when we think about all areas like when we think about running running is a really pretty basic skill it's not like a golf swing Um, but there's different types of running like if you're training to be a 1500 meter runner that's a different skill than a marathon runner and so you want to understand the skills that are applicable to what you're trying to achieve and I think that's really important so do a skills assessment understanding the skills that are applicable to what you're trying to achieve once you've got that overview of all the different skills you need the next thing you want to do is do a grading of where your current skills sit based on the important areas you need to develop. So you might you might do a skills assessment on the area that you're figuring out, and there might be eight fundamental skills that are key to success in your world, okay, in that area. Then what you want to do is you want to give yourself a grade of where you're how you're doing in those areas. And this is also another good time to spend some time with a mentor slash coach. Because what the mentor slash coach will is, they might be able to give you a better assessment. Because, you know, like some people have an unrealistic self-assessment. Now, unrealistic sometimes too positive. Unrealistic sometimes too negative. You know, so if you can get someone who can sit beside you and go, actually, I think you're a 4 out of 10 here, and here's why. Because you can do this, this, and that, but here's what a 5 looks like, and I don't think you're there right now. And so that that kind of outside perspective gives you a much better ability to, to see where you need to develop or where you are right now. Now one thing I think that's a really cool thing to think about around your skill development is to give yourself short time frames where you're focusing on only one or two areas Now just going back to the grading thing there'll be some areas you're doing great in there'll be some areas you may be like a 10 out of 10 and there'll be some you might be like a 2 out of 10 and there'll be some in that mid-range and obviously the areas you're great in we want to maintain that and maybe evolve that a little bit but there, there will be some areas where you'll see massive jumps in success if you can Focus on that skill development. And so what we want to think is we want to identify what's the most powerful skills to develop right now that will have the biggest impact based on what I'm trying to achieve right now. So with your mentor and your coach, let's say you've got 10 different areas you need to assess. Two of them, you're almost like a 10 out of 10. Four of them, you're like a four out of four of them, like a six to nine out of 10. And then four of them, you're like a one to five out of 10. Now, you can't fix them all at once. You really can't. And so what you want to do is you want to give yourself a time frame where you're going to give yourself a couple areas where you're really going to focus on. And it's a good idea to kind of go, what's going to give me the best bang for my buck? So you might say, and again, I haven't really given a top an area here, but you might just say there's two areas that I'm going to work on for the next 10 weeks or the next six weeks, and I'm just going to spend two hours a week Focusing on developing my skill set in these two areas and currently one area I'm 6 out of 10, one I'm a 2 out of 10 So the aim is the next six weeks is to get the 2 out of 10 up to 5 and the 6 up to an 8 And now you can see what that does is it helps to give us a singular focus Now the thing is in six weeks you're not going to get all areas up to 10 out of 10 And also if you try to get all areas up to 10 out of 10 at one time you're kind of setting yourself up to fail because it's just too overwhelming. Whereas if you were just to kind of break that down and go one or two areas that will have a massive impact and then be really singular focused, because the other thing I like about this is when you sit down and you know, I've just got to focus on this in this next moment, you know, you use your time more wisely. So identifying the areas then what you want to do is develop a skills development plan and again this will be where you use your coaching mentors so at this stage you'll sit down okay here's the error. I'm a two out of ten what will it take for me to get to five and what is the plan of action that I need to do so you know, let's just let's use rugby, for example. I'm, I'm going to be a goal kicker. I am currently look at two out of 10. What are the things I need to work on for the next six weeks to get at five out of 10? Okay, it might be I need to get think better at thinking about my head placement, where I'm looking. I uh, might be thinking about getting my run through done. I um, might be thinking about thinking about how much power I need to connect with the ball. Those are the four things I'm going to focus on for the next six weeks. And I'm going to spend two hours a week focusing on these things. Now, you can see that if you spend two hours a week just really narrowly focused on those two things, or those areas in that area, you're going to become a better kicker, aren't you? And that's what we want to think about. So you want to develop a skills development plan with your coach and mentor in a time frame that's realistic and also that sets up the amount of time you're going to spend on that area each week. The next thing you want to do with set is you've just got to do the work. You know, you've got to do the work. Um... It's interesting, I think about myself as a triathlete. So as a triathlete, I was a a really hard trainer. I was a consistent trainer. I never did skill work. And you could argue that triathlon skills are pretty low. I never really did run drills. I never really did cycling drills. I did a little bit of swimming technique because my swimming was really terrible when I started. But it wasn't a weekly thing that I worked on. And arguably... If I, you know, I like I was training a lot, so I was training, you know, probably averaging twenty five hours a week for eight years of my life. So I was probably better off to train a little bit less on the hard stuff and spend a bit more time on skill development, and I would have been a faster athlete. Like instead, I think I swam five days a week when I was doing Ironman, and it'd be generally a three k swim up to a four and a half k swim. Um, I was probably better off to swim five, to four days a week, and just do a one skill set session a week. But my problem was I loved hard work, but that was working against me. And this is what we've got to think about in skill development. I would have been a better swimmer to spend the hour just, you know, learning better catch, learning better posture, learning better kick, learning breathing, you know, spending time on that. If I'd spent an hour a week just doing that, I guarantee I would have got a faster swimmer than just doing another hour of hard swimming. And so when it comes to doing the work, often the skill work is the thing that people neglect the most. And Like me, it can often be the area that gives us the biggest amount of reward. And so, especially if you're someone like me who values hard work, so if we go back to mindsets, so that could be a mindset I could be working on. Always working hard isn't the wisest way forward. That's a good mindset to be practicing in the mindsets, isn't it? You know, That's a good mindset for me to practice. My mindset, you could argue, well, hard working and being consistent is a great mindset to have, but always working hard isn't. And so that's, we go back to mindset. So skill development, do the work and make sure you put it into your diaries. Like if I were to go back to doing Ironman, which I can't really see happening in my life, but who knows what my future looks like, that would be something I would definitely do. And I think about my piano playing nowadays, I do a lot more work on skill development. And then the last step in skill set is assess, review and test. So what you want to be doing as a part of that, period of time, so let's say you choose an eight-week period where you're going to focus on a couple of skills, and and you do actually plan to do an hour a week or two hours a week in that that area, then what you want to be doing is having assessments often, so review, and testing often, so it might be that you have a fitness test that you do, or a skills test that you do, Uh, like on the piano I could record my playing, stuff like that. So that's how we want to approach skill set development. Again, it's to do a skills assessment of all the skills you need to be successful in the area. Create an understanding of, of this with guided, guided support. Grade your different skills where they currently sit right now. Then determine one or two areas that you want to work on that will have a massive impact. And, and really what you want to think about is the areas that will have the biggest impact in the shortest period. Um, then the time frame and the structure around how you're going to put that in place. Then get your plan in place with your coach and your mentor, do the work, assess, test, and review. The last part of the, the triangle is what they call structure. Now to me, and I actually don't talked to Greg yet, so I'm not quite sure what they mean by structure, but I'm interpreting this as in the structure you need to be a high performer. Now early on I talked a lot about The the girls at the school who had that great infrastructure about them. The athletes like the All Blacks, like the Rower, who have this great infrastructure around them. But if you're an everyday person, we don't tend to have those structures around us. So if we want to be a high performer, it does have to be a more of a self-guided thing. So when we think about self-structure, we're thinking about things like planning tools so for me it's my weekly meeting it's my weekly review process it's my weekly assessment of my week for me it's my morning meeting my my writing my objectives for my day for me it's my reflection tools at night it's for me using my support network in really powerful ways so so understanding my support network and also communicating in ways that allow me to bring the best out of myself and and for them to support me in the best way possible so when we think about structure what i think we're thinking about is how do i create a life that allows for my mindset and my skill set development to go in place you know cuz unfortunately all the best plans in the world won't work if you're a terrible planner you know I me mean? you could you could go away and do an hour on this work here and do some mindset work and skill set work but if you have if you're a terrible planner that ain't going to happen is it you know you're not going to you're not going to do it so when we think about this, I'm thinking of those basic life skills. Like, where are your life skills around self organization? Where are your life skills around support, using support really wisely? Where are your mind skills, life skills around how to get more out of yourself? Like, you know, like, I I think I've talked on the show recently about this, but this kind of concept of, you know, some people are good at being consistent of turning up to exercise, and then there's some people who are consistently turning up and delivering on the objective. And those are two different things. And to me, I don't think you should be spending that much time on hitting objectives if you can't be consistent, because consistency is going to always outweigh hitting objectives. Like, if if you, let's just use running again, if you want to be a great runner and you go, but you go and do two sessions every couple of weeks, and you smash yourself in those two sessions, you hit those objectives, but then you don't train outside of them, you're not going to do as well as somebody who only turns up and does the sessions without hitting objectives. The person who runs consistently will do better. So you've got to think of how you lay the foundation, but what does it take to be a consistent runner? Well, there's going to be an organisational level in your life. And when we think about structure, that's what we think about, is what is your personal management skills that you need to bring the best out of yourself? And unfortunately for a lot of people, this is something that ebbs and flows. So a lot of people, their personal management skills will be reliant on the challenge they have in front of them. So let's say they've got a big study period coming up and they know they've got a lot on their plate. So they'll become a really awesome personal manager and they'll really smash that period and then the study period finishes and they stop doing the personal management tools that help them be a higher level version of themselves, and so ultimately they regress as a person. And, and what I, I always think is that your job is to understand your personal management skills, and they are a consistent thing in your life. You know that that's the you know like like me, my weekly meeting happens every Sunday. You know my my morning meeting happens every morning. I did it this morning. My my this happen every day, because if I can have a good structure in my life where I've got great personal management skills. I'm gonna be able to do the work around mindset, I'm gonna do the skill set work, and I'm gonna be able to bring better levels out of myself. Now another thing around structure, which I haven't tapped on, is the environment you put yourself in. Because as much as I've talked about high performance environments like the All Blacks and like that school, you can determine to go to environments that are gonna help you be successful. So it can be you can join an amazing gym that just knows how to bring the best out of you. I like to think my runners get more out of themselves when they're in my running environment. It's an environment, it's a structure that brings the best out of themselves. So you can move towards environments that help you be a higher version of yourself. And actually, I think you must move towards environments that help you bring a higher version of yourself. You know, I think doing it by yourself is a harder way forward. So when we think about structure, and probably one thing I'd say here is, a good way to look at this is, when you've been your best, What were your personal management skills that you were applying at that time? And are you applying them right now? And if not, how do you bring them back to your life? Now we can talk about the evolution of that moving forward, but at this stage, I don't, you know, that, well, well, if you are in a space where you've got that, you can then kind of go, how do I improve these? It's the next step in the process. And then, if, and then the last step of that is, then what environments do I put myself in that give me a structure that brings the best out of myself? And fitness is a great example of this, because a great fitness environment brings the best out of people. Now, I'm sure there's in all other areas is that as well. So it could be a study environment, it could be a hobby environment, it could be a work environment, and so on and so on. So that's the third kind of aspect to the pillar here is the structure, and and I'm putting this in two ways: the life management skills that you have, and are you consistently applying them and evolving them, and the environments you need to put yourself into to bring the best out of yourself. The last step that they talk about is the underlying is well-being. Mm -hmm. Now, well-being is pretty obvious, so I won't touch on it too much. But how's your sleep going? How's your nutrition going? What's happening for your relationships? How you doing with your healthy outlets? Things like finances. If you're looking after those things in your life, you have the better ability to be a high performer in the thing you're trying to be a high performer in. But let's let's flip that upside down. If you're not sleeping and you're eating like crap, and your relationships are horrible, and when you struggle you drink alcohol and you smoke and you you know you you know, withdraw from the world, and your money's you know you're up to, up to your eyeballs how good are you going to be at being a high performer? It's going to be harder, eh? So that's that kind of, it's almost like the foundation of everything, that if you can get those well-being tools in place and be consistent with them, then your ability to have better mindsets, better skill sets and better structure is going to be more in place. So one of your focuses should be, how do I look after my well-being in my life? So to recap, high performance model, this is the All Blacks High Performance Triangle. Mindset Skill set Structure Underlying that We have well being Ideally In all of these areas here All of us can have work ons And I said at the beginning Of this episode That maybe what you want to do Is you want to think about um, You want to think about Putting some time aside To do this work on this And it's You know If you take any we think Away from any of my podcasts Do the work Do the work <laughs> You know like do the work. I guarantee if you if you commit to practicing mindsets, you'll get better at mindsets. I guarantee if you do the work around skill set, you'll get better at skill set. I guarantee if you improve your structure, you'll get better at that. And if you can do all three at once, then your high performance is going to come and you'll be that higher version of yourself. Okay, team. I'm very excited to have Dr. Alan Goodwin on the show. He is a man who's doing some really important work around personal coaching, uh, psychology, and all this kind of important stuff around helping people be higher level selves. So welcome to the show.
1: Thanks very much. I'm really happy to be here, Bevan.
0: So maybe just give me a bit of a, your own background. Tell me a bit about yourself. Uh, Well, I started out
1: as an attorney. Um, Most of my clients are surprised to hear that. (laughs) It's probably a good thing. (laughs) They're not uh, looking for an attorney when they come to a psychologist. But um, I I practice a form of mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral psychotherapy. Um, I earned a doctorate in in psychology, in counseling psychology, after um, becoming an attorney, and so anyway, my practice is, um, my approach is active, it's strengths-based, it's goal-directed. And um, so we, we blend warmth and humor with really a, an examination of the way that, that a person's thoughts and feelings and behaviors are all causing one another all the time. And you can throw in physical states because those also interact with your thoughts and the way that you're feeling and behaving. And that really is what uh, goal focused uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is about.
0: Can I get I ask why the switch in career?
1: Um, you know, uh, um, a lot of people think there's a big difference between the two, and of course, in a lot of ways, there 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 are differences. But a lot of people who become attorneys are really looking to help others, um, mm-hmm. and and a lot of attorneys really can be, you know, very uh, positive influences on people's lives. Um, But, you know, as a psychologist, you're doing a very different kind of helping. And um, the more I I practiced, uh, really, even in in law school, the more I thought about it, the more I was drawn to the idea of directly working with people. I had an experience with a particular client, I remember, that was sort of like a watershed event that led me to think, all right, listen, talking to myself, your goal here as a lawyer is really not. What you're most interested in. You know, I was much, much more interested in why this uh, person was still so stuck um, in the pain that they were feeling because of a relationship that ended um, that came up in the deposition uh, than I was in, you know, getting at the facts and the information I needed to get at for the purpose of the deposition.
0: Was was that an interesting moment in your career because you know you see it seems like you' kind of found the real thing that you wanted to kind of solve and that you know with your career. and um, but you know you obviously established yourself as a lawyer, you are doing pretty well. Um was that a hard moment to to make that switch, or was it kind of so obvious you just went down that pathway?
1: Yeah, that's a really insightful question. It, it, I made the switch very early on in my career. It's insightful that you ask it because um there were so many attorneys that I knew who were farther along in their career, who sort of, you know, on the side would say, you know, I've got, you know, house payments and obligations for myself and my family. I couldn't make the move, but I would make a move now if I could. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying all attorneys are unhappy with their career, but Mm -hmm. being early in my career um, definitely opened up the door in a way that it probably wouldn't have if I'd waited. And that's why I thought I need to move on this if I'm going to do it.
0: Mm, well, it's pretty. Good. It's interesting. I actually worked with a lawyer a few years ago, and she was she was actually over her career. She's a very successful lawyer, but she was over her career. Um But she was in this trap of of creating the financial burden of staying in her career because you're so dissatisfied in her career buying was kind of how she only got satisfaction in life. And she was literally talking about how she had a career. And then she was trying to buy this house with millions of dollars, which is basically keeping her in debt in the career. And there was this kind of conflict of what's giving my emotional fulfillment right now, which is ultimately trapping me in a life that I don't necessarily enjoy. It was a really interesting, I imagine it happens a lot, or, you know, not, as you said, not all your lawyers are unhappy, but I can imagine it happens a lot in industries where you get paid a lot for something that maybe you no longer love.
1: Yeah. It, I mean, you described it and, And, um, you know, people get stuck in certain ways of being uh, that also keep them stuck, you know, keep them detached from Mm. their emotions Mm. and from an awareness of what would bring them joy and um, really an awareness that it's possible,
0: really. So in your introduction, you talked about the type of kind of treatment you or the way you approach the treatment, the people you're working with. So can you give us a bit more detail around the foundation of what that is?
1: Yeah, Sure. Um, it's really pretty straightforward and I say this to clients because it's important um, for our tools to be simple because changing really isn't simple that's when it gets complicated uh, but the but my job is to make it um, make the process uh, very clear um, and I try to do that in in lots of ways I, I hope you'll get a sense of that when we talk but um, the the, um, the broad uh, Uh, foundation of the work is the idea that the way that you think, in other words, how you interpret your experiences, the way people treat you, how you behave, your performance level, the way that you think um, causes certain feelings in you. And certain feelings in you also tend to cause certain interpretations the way that you think. So they cause each other. And both of those are interacting in a causal way with how you behave. So what I uh, suggest to clients is you think of a behavioral intervention like the Nike marketing line, just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm talking about behaviors, I'm referring to anything that just by virtue of doing it, it tends to have either a positive or a negative effect on how you feel and how you think. So nutrition, exercise, things like meditation. Um, you know, of course, substance uh, substance use. All of these can have a direct effect, whether you want them to or not, on how you feel and think. And your physical states you can throw in because, you know, for instance, if I'm feeling nervous, I may have an upset stomach or a headache. And on the converse, I may have a headache or an upset stomach, and that leads to certain feelings and thought patterns.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: they all four really interact with one another, thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and physical states.
0: Thoughts, feelings, behaviors. And can you give us a really good example of what typically a typical example of what they would look like in somebody's life?
1: Um, okay. Um, somebody with uh, anxiety about uh, going out in public and not looking good enough, okay. having a bad okay. hair day or, or whatever it might be, um, might not go out into public because they are thinking that they need people to view them a certain way. And so their behavior is affected. They, they don't go out or they excessively um, manage their appearance um, because of the thoughts that they have and the really powerful feelings that they attach to their thoughts. So in other words, the thought isn't just I want people to you know admire the way that I look. Um, the thought is I need people to think of me and view me a certain way and feel a certain way about me when they see me. Mm. And if I don't have that, it will be unacceptable to me. And so you see how that way of thinking triggers a very intense feeling state, which then leads to, you know, the behaviors of like, you know, excessively um, uh, um, being careful about how you look or being a shut in, you know, staying at home because you don't want anyone to see you.
0: So, so I suppose when you're working with a client, because you know there's kind of a multi-dimensional approach to this, isn't there? Because you are looking at those four different components. What were they? There was feeling, behaviors, state. What, what were the four? Oh, uh, it's the way that you
1: feel, yeah. the way that you think, the way that you behave, and your physical feeling states your your body, how your body feels.
0: Okay, and so when you someone comes to you because you know there's a lot there isn't there when you kind of break down the kind of the those different areas and what they represent and how much there is to all those different areas what what what's your start point oh um uh, well
1: we start with what's bringing them to me um in the in the initial session i'm just finding out um what's causing them to contact me and um and at the same time what i'm trying to understand is who they are so in goal-directed uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, we do look at the past, but we're really limiting how much we look to the past. It's not a sort of aimless um, uh, uh, storytelling about the past. Um, what it is, is really trying to understand how certain patterns of placing certain demands on the world and on yourself began. And so your relationships with your, family members are important and past romantic relationships in your life are important and um, any successes or, or failures or challenges you've confronted. All of these contribute to, you know, forming the person that you are today. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And and that's what we're looking at. These patterned ways that get repeated of uh, thinking certain ways and feeling and uh, behaving.
0: And, from there, so from there the process is getting a deep understanding of, of what's created where they are right now. And you're saying it's more of a goal directed. So then it's more about kind of setting a pathway of where we're trying to point you towards and then building a set of tools and structures around how they progress towards that?
1: Yeah, exactly. It's it's pretty analytical. So for instance, the the book that I've written um, is really directed at a particular kind of anxiety. It's a it's about anxiety connected to cosmetic procedures but it's related to what we were just talking about because um the the pressure to look a certain way especially with social media Mm. is so intense for for so many people Mm. um what we would try to do is examine um for instance a good example um you hear people talk about expectations you know don't don't have expectations in life and then you'll Sort of, you know, you'll be happy. Yeah. But really, um, that's helpful, but it'd be more helpful and I think more precise if what we were to identify is not expectations, but demands. So if someone goes out in public, um, it's, you know, perfectly understandable for them to want and even expect people to treat them with kindness. Well, probably not expect because there will be people who won't be kind because of yeah. their own problems. Yeah. But to want it, the problem is um, the problem comes about when people demand it, whether they realize it or not, they're really going out and they're going out with a with a, a thinking state that people must treat me a certain way, must react to me a certain way. So you see how that's something we can you know we can totally grab onto and look at um, what's what's leading you to you know walk around with that sort of rule inside you. That you're enforcing on people in your own mind
0: mm. and why is it damaging why is it why is, why is it the, the demand why does it create problems
1: yeah it's a great question I mean that's really key and and um, one of the ways that we uh, can work uh, I think constructively with this is by using compassion um, mm. if we think of so the answer to your question is because other people
0: can't do it. A lot of a lot of other people. Some people so, can do it. So you're going to be set up for failure, basically. You're going to be set up for disappointment, or you know those, those negative emotions you kind of talk about. Exactly. Yeah. And and if you so the, so
1: the question is, well, how do you cut them slack? How do you cut those other people um, slack? How do you how do you be be um, accepting of them treating you badly? And one way is the tool of compassion. If we think of compassion, um, not just as like niceness, um, but really as something different. If we think of compassion as viewing another person within the context of their
0: struggle, and yep. we don't take their bad behavior toward us so personally. Mm, because I can have more sympathy for who they are in that situation, which allows me not to take so much ownership upon myself.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like if someone's walking toward you with a cane and, you know, their cane slips on the pavement as they approach you and they fall into you, you don't get angry with them, Yeah, you know, yeah. because their limitation is right in front of you. And so another way of thinking of compassion is about broadening our definition of limitations. We are all walking around with limitations all the time yeah. that are yeah. affecting our behavior,
0: Mm. Do you, what, what about when you get people who are malicious to you you know like because there are people in our lives who are actually just damaging and, and deliberately damaging towards us Is, does compassion help there like, I, like i'm not, not you know what? what's your thoughts on that
1: yeah that's a good question
0: because because you know <laughs> you do get those people don't you where you get people who uh, you know, deeply unhappy and deeply dissatisfied within themselves, but they are just trying to bring you down. And, and a lot of people, you know, I often think, you know, a lot of the, the world's problems could be solved with greater, deeper communication skills and understanding and all this kind of stuff. Um, but a lot of people, a lot of their stress in life is how other people treat them. Um, and so, you know, and sometimes it is just how you're interpreting it and maybe, that, you know, that compassion type of thinking. But then sometimes there is someone who is actually just a, quite a horrible person. Um, and so how do you approach it when it's kind of of that level? So, yeah, I mean, that's really
1: key and it's a really important question. So um, one thing, not to pick at your words, but I do the same thing. And yeah. and it's illustra- illustrative of the issue. Um, they... One thing we can say is they really aren't a horrible person. Okay. They are a horribly unhappy person. Okay. And and those people um, we are not going to be able to convert, or it's unlikely, and anyway, it's not our job to convert them. Uh, and in having compassion for them, uh, that doesn't mean we need to engage with them. Mm-hmm. We may want to keep away from them. We may want to set limits. With them, if they're in our lives, and maybe cut them out of our lives.
0: It's, it's interesting with that one with family members, isn't it? Um, you know, because you do get those, and family members can often touch nerves more than anything else. But you, you know, I've known people over my life who literally have that family member, and they feel their obligation to blood, if you know what I mean. They feel that they should keep their presence in their life, even though it's actually not a good thing for that person. It's a that's quite a hard conflict, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And it really raises difficult questions, especially around now. um, People think a a lot in the U.S. about the holidays and, well, I guess everywhere. Christmas is celebrated and, um, you know, getting together with family and, you know, having political discussions and all sorts of situations where, you know, really ugly interactions can can happen and what you do about that and you know, when do you cut someone out of your life who's a family member? That's a much more difficult um, question.
0: So so compassion's one of the tools that you try to teach people. You, you, you seem like meditation is a big part of your process as well. So talk us through why you feel that's important and how you kind of approach that. Because I've been a meditator for, I've meditated since I've been 19 and I've, I've done it every day and I'm now 45. Um, and it's something, it's one of those things that I think deep, everyone understands that would bring value to their life but the application is really hard for people to do. And so, you know, you actually did the habit of doing it day in, day out. Um. So why do you feel it's an important part of, of this progression of taking someone to move forward? And how do you help people to actually get into that kind of long-term habit of doing it? Okay. So
1: great. Um. So mindfulness is key and you can hear um, from what we've been talking about so far, um, we can describe what we've been doing as being mindful of mm-hmm. how we're experiencing um, other people and ourselves in the world, right? So mm-hmm. the way someone is treating me, um, I can be mindful of that. I can also be, you know, mindful, in other words, aware of how I'm reacting to it, what I'm demanding of that other person. Um, I can see them as really struggling and causing them to behave really badly. And I can still detach from them. And um, meditation is a really powerful tool. The problem is it's usually thought of as a tool for relaxation. And the reason I say that's a problem is because it causes people to um, undervalue it. The way that I encourage clients to think about meditation and the reason that I would talk with them about it is not first because it's an opportunity for them to stop and relax, because it's oftentimes not relaxing for people. They feel like they're failing at Mm. it because their mind is so active. And it's very often people will say, you know, I'm not one of those people who can meditate. I've I've got too active a mind. And what they're misunderstanding is that, you know, what they have is a human mind. The human mind is really active. Mm. And what we're doing in meditating first is not relaxing. The first thing we're doing is staying present with ourselves with our active mind, which means all of our perceptions, the reactions that I'm having to the things I'm hearing and seeing and smelling and feeling and tasting in that moment and and thinking, all of the thoughts that I'm having. So if you are meditating, what you're trying to do is be mindful, in other words be aware of all of that, because meditation is a practice of staying. It's about staying with all of it you know there's a there's a joke. What did the Zen monk say to the hot dog salesman, "Make me one with everything
0: Okay nice, yeah, okay. So,
1: you know, the, the idea is, of course, you wouldn't, the Zen monk wouldn't order the hot dog.
0: <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe, you know.
1: <laughs> but, um, but you know, it's about uh, being being part of all of it, all of whatever you're seeing, hearing, thinking, feeling. And the problem that we're working on combating when we meditate is our tendency to reject the things that we don't want in our presence
0: so you so, feel this is really important because it helps us to have a greater awareness of actually what we're facing right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, you that's the same thing you're going to have at the dinner table with your uncle who's always, you know, provocative and obnoxious and starting fights. Mm. You know, you don't want him to be saying the things that he says, but somehow you've got to integrate that into your, you know, existence. That's what we're practicing when we meditate. And if you do it long enough, you probably experience this. Um, the objective is ultimately to get to a point where you are, you do feel more calm and relaxed because you are coexisting in a more friendly way with all the things around you, the things you like and the things you really don't like.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that we had earthquakes here in Christchurch about 12 years ago, and uh, a good friend of mine was a manager of the, the, a company that I was working with at the time, and um, she said she phoned about 50 people at that time um, just because she was a caring manager and she said, I was the only one who seemed calm and relaxed through the experience. Now, you know, like it was, it was just really interesting. And and she actually learned the way that I meditate about five years later. And she said, once she learned that she kind of understood maybe why I was able to be in that place. Now I'm not far from perfect, but I definitely feel that kind of equilibrium of self and that kind of awareness of how to be healthy as an overall being is it's a big tool in my life for sure.
1: Yeah. I'm not surprised it's it's complicated this stuff we're talking about because there are also individual differences. and you know, one of the things that we wind up talking about in psychotherapy is you know the sort of type A or type B personality type. Mm. Um, more intense people um oftentimes feel like they're especially not, you know the type person who can benefit from meditation. And I think it's important to um to help those people see that. They, they don't have to become, you know, uh, a, yeah. a quiet. Lama. Uh, I'm sorry,
0: <laughs> the, 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 like the Dalai Lama or a different personality is kind of what you're saying, isn't it?
1: Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You, you, you will evolve, but that doesn't mean you're going to evolve into a different type of, of, of person.
0: So you talk about compassion, you talk about the kind of the value of of the meditation, that mindfulness, which creates better awareness so we can make better choices, whatever kind of tools are really important in helping people progress around these areas.
1: Well, you know, self-compassion is related to compassion. And so having some patience and willingness to look at yourself and to see that change requires a process. Mm. Uh, It requires really understanding why uh, these patterns keep um, re-emerging. And so, you know, we use metaphors and, and uh, anything that will help um, explain w- what this person's struggle is. And so I would say patience with themselves in the process is really important.
0: That's it. That's often the biggest problem in any change journey, but isn't it? Is that kind of needing it now? And, and the urgency of trying to get it now, you know, like the weight loss journey is the obvious example is, you know, everyone's looking for the quick fix, whereas realistically, uh, to create long-term sustainable weight loss is, it's a journey. And um, it's that kind of, we work against ourselves, don't we?
1: Yeah, there's no question about it. And it's a great example, you know, with weight loss, uh, oftentimes people would expect that what we're going to do is um, that, that I'm going to be working with them on, on calorie counting And really, um, the really important role that uh, psychologists can play in the process is about helping them to identify the ways that they're not treating themselves well. I think it's I think it's really helpful to see that you know um, weight loss is so difficult because food is different than other drugs, of course, because you know we don't have to take other drugs. Yeah,
0: and and you have to eat so often you have
1: to eat often and you're inundated with advertisements of people who are um, eating all these, you know, delicious foods that are, that are drugs. They do have an effect on the way that we think and feel. And so you've got to find some kind of balance, but the, the point is in in the psychotherapy, what we can look at is, you know, are you setting yourself up for needing that medication? Mm -hmm. You know, so just like someone might medicate, we can medicate in an unhealthy way with meditation. You know, even healthy things can be used in unhealthy ways. A meditation practice can be used as a way of detaching from the world. Yeah, you know. Well, you see, our-
0: I see that in exercise. I work in exercise, and you see, that there's a lot of people who look healthy from the outside, but actually exercise in a really unhealthy way. You know, there's, you know, as in a way to escape the thing that they actually need to really work on.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. and. and- you know, go go ahead. You can say well, something. what's
0: really interesting in our world is that you get rewarded for that. You know, so if you if you are an unhealthy eater and you put on weight, you kind of there's a stigma that comes with it. There's kind of a shame. There's all that, that stuff that comes alongside that. Whereas in our world, especially in this kind of you know social media world, is being an extremely fit person. is as people think you're, you get you get respect, you get rapport, you get um, you know, you get admiration. So you get admiration and all this positive stuff even though you may be doing a behavior that's actually unhealthy for you. And so it it draws people more towards it for the wrong reasons.
1: Yeah, yeah. And one one signpost that people can use to identify this is compulsiveness. If you Mm. think of the word compulsive, it's the feeling of being compelled, feeling compelled to do something. And, you know, people can be feeling compelled to exercise obsessively, you know, excessively.
0: Um, and, nothing- and i think a good example of that is that when like I, I was that when i was that i was that person myself when i was younger i'm not anymore i still exercise a lot but when i was younger if i got injured i i couldn't stop i you know i had to you know, compel you know and i just make my injuries worse whereas nowadays if i get an injury it's like okay well here's what you're going to do you know you can pull back and it's it's a much healthier place but you can that's an example where the the person who exercises too much with every signs telling me they need to pull back physically But they can't emotionally. Yeah, yeah, Yeah.
1: it's complicated. You know, people who have success in in bariatric procedures, um, who lose weight, uh, have a much higher incidence of um, of alcohol abuse. Oh, really? And yeah, and so you know, there's a complicated uh, dynamic going on there of a a shifting of compulsive (laughs) behaviors. Some people preserve the weight loss by becoming compulsive in exercise and yeah. in fitness, which, like you said, you know, looks really healthy and in some ways is healthy, mm. but in some ways can be not healthy.
0: Can I ask you as, as someone who's helping other people, because I imagine you get your rock stars, the people who kind of just jump on board and kind of everything you do, they kind of take on board. But I also imagine there's people who it's, it's quite difficult to actually get into do and sustain the work, uh, what, what kind of percentage wise would that sit? Where would that sit? And when you do get people who actually do the work and actually, you know, cause let's be honest, the work, the change comes from doing the consistent work. Um, what's the key to that from your perspective, from the person who's trying to support these people?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I think I shouldn't attach a percentage to it only okay. because it's so, um, there's so many different factors. You know, if someone's coming and they've been abused um, since childhood, um, they're going to be real resistant to trusting
0: yeah.
1: somebody, anybody, yeah. including me. And so um, what we'll accomplish will have to be on a certain timeline that fits for that person. And um, I play a really important role in helping them tolerate that. Oftentimes, people are coming to me. So for instance, someone who struggles with anxiety and depression is, is demanding too much. They are um, reacting with intolerance to themselves and to other people. And that's why they're feeling you know, anxious, which is a form of nervousness and also sadness, which is a form of depression. And wouldn't it make sense that they're also going to get down on themselves and on me and on the work and on the plan because they're tending to um react that way to not have mm. the staying power because they're expecting things to fail them mm. including themselves mm. and so what i've got to be doing is trying to head that off uh, and trying to encourage self-compassion and patience uh, and respecting the process it can be difficult to strike that balance because i also have to be instilling hope and mm. so the cheerfulness you might hear and the sort of encouragement you might hear that there's a plan that you can do this, that it's achievable, can um, have a kind of a an opposite impact on some people. They can feel like, you know, I'm too pressured um, because they are fearing that they're going to fail. And mm-hmm. the more more positive I feel about the program I'm offering, the more it could activate their feel of fear of failure. this will this will really confirm that i'm I'm inadequate as a person.
0: So I suppose for yourself, you have to be very delicate, but also going back to that mindfulness, you need to be really aware of the nurturing that you're taking someone through.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's been well known um in my field for decades that the most powerful Um, predictor of success in psychotherapy is the relationship between the client and the the psychotherapist. So that's where it begins. It begins with me and that person um, having a connection where they feel like they can trust me to sort of, you know, get down in the mud with them and and sift through this stuff, figure it out.
0: But but It's really interesting because you think of all relationships, you know, that where to trust if we think of the relationships we have in our lives, which are the strongest relationships. It's often the strongest thing, isn't it? So as a, as a therapist, how do you build trust? And I'm, again, I'm sure there's a million ways you do it, but you know, like what's, how do you approach building that trust with the people you work with?
1: Yeah. Um, it's, a it's about being yourself. It's about uh, making an authentic contact with another person. Um, communicating your intentions really clearly, communicating that it's a safe place. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's about being clear about uh, what my you know, personal philosophies are uh, to the extent that it's relevant. I, I don't want to fill the space with myself and who I am, um, but to whatever extent it'll help the client feel safe, I do want to be responsive to any you know, curiosity they may have about that. So for instance, sharing humor, You know, you would think that um, a psychologist um, wouldn't be sharing humor because, you know, this isn't a place where we're coming for jokes. Well, that's not really true. It is a place where we're coming to make contact with another person. And one of the ways that you cope with the stresses of life is by maintaining a certain balance, you know, remembering that, you know, stresses are part of life, but so is pleasure, and we mm-hmm. can model yeah. that in the therapy room. So, yeah, we don't want to be spending the hour just, you know, joking around. But we do want to find humor in things because
0: it models a way of living. Can I ask on a personal level then? Because it's, you know, your, your job is a very important role and it's, It's a lot of giving. Um, So how do you look after yourself? Because there's a lot of people, and not even necessarily just in your environment, but a lot of people who live in worlds where they give a lot. And sometimes that can actually be their biggest problem. But how do you actually look after yourself because you are kind of giving a lot of yourself to helping other people?
1: It's an important part of the the training and the ongoing um, coping. You have to make time for play. Uh, just like I tell clients, we we have to get a way to remember our perspective. And um, so finding my own joy, being physically, you know, exercising, um, getting out in nature is important. Um, And and play with other people, with having people in my life that um, I enjoy spending time with and things that I enjoy doing. Those are really important. I mean, for me, Art is important also, and so uh, just trying to be a whole person, but it, it can be difficult. You know, through COVID, um, it was very helpful to normalize the anxiety with people, and I continue to do that. You know, um, anxiety is something we're supposed to feel, uh, and there are a lot of things around us that are threatening. That's really what anxiety is. It's a sense of threat. Mm-hmm. It, it protects yeah. us from threats in the environment. And in our modern age, you know, we're not we're not worried about a bear coming and attacking us. Uh, usually, we're we're worried about you know, COVID or losing our job or you know the things that we worry about. But the the key, by the way, with regard to anxiety, isn't exactly that the bear is going to come and find me in my cave. It's that the bear is going to come and find me in my cave, and I won't be able to cope with that. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. the key in anxiety treatment is about focusing on, on coping. And yeah, I have to maintain that for myself and my own life too. I I do the same work on myself that I do with clients. Mm.
0: So, so it's that in the situation that I'm facing that creates anxiety is, is learning to put the, the, the tools and basically going back to trust really, isn't it? To, to trust that if that situation were to present itself, I would know how to deal with it
1: yeah, it, there are two questions I encourage clients to think about with regard to anxiety. The first is, what's the likelihood that the thing will happen? Nice. Because what we know from research is we way overestimate the likelihood that a bad thing will happen. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: And And for people with anxiety disorders, the percentage is crazy high. It's like over ninety percent of the oh, wow. things that they worry about never happen. Wow. Um, and so that's the first thing. What's the likelihood the thing will happen? And the second thing is what you said. If it does happen, how am I going to be able to cope? And so recognizing that there are ways to cope with with these things. And like I said, I I think it's very powerful for psychologists to be modeling that. Before I became a psychologist, I always thought um, that one thing that wasn't helpful about uh, a lot of mental health professionals is they give this impression that they could never have um, the problems that they talk with people about mm. and it just is not true you mm. know we we struggle we have human struggles you know and yeah. ma- many see our own therapists i mean it's it's typical that a psychologist at, at some point is going to be consulting their own psychologist just because it's um it's it's really valuable to have a different person rooting around in your head with you
0: can i ask what you so you said you written written a book what's the name of your book
1: Oh, um, thanks. It's um, saving face without losing your mind, bringing mindfulness to your cosmetic procedure.
0: So, so what, 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 why did you want to write this book? Tell, tell me the background of, of the influence on in doing the book.
1: You know, I work in LA. Um, not only is there a lot of pressure to look a certain way, and clients will be talking about that all the time, um, but there are also um, stresses that people encounter when they're deciding if they want to have a doctor help them, a physician help them um, with certain appearance goals that they have. And so people have come to me to talk about, um, you know, whether they're thinking of having a facelift or something done to their, some part of their face or um, their body. Liposuction is really pretty common. Uh, And how we make those decisions in a healthy way, whether to, to have the procedure and then um, how to cope with the procedure is a big part of it. There's a lot of anxiety if you're going to have, um, a cosmetic procedure, because one reason is the outcome is always to some extent uncertain because it's to some extent, yeah. always objective.
0: Yep. Yeah. Well, well, can you talk about, like, like I work in fitness, so I kind of get the image thing, um, you talk about you know LA and I totally get you know it's a Hollywood kind of environment. Is it, is it that much of a pressure? Is it, is it quite a huge pressure? There's kind of neediness for or or kind of pressure to have a, a certain kind of look or at least a level of look. Is that something that's really kind of kind of in people's mind?
1: You know, I don't think there's any question that there is. I mean, when I have friends or family visit, it's like it's typical that at some point they'll say, "Wow, the people here." Um, just really do look different, and um, it's not that everybody is thin or everybody's had um, cosmetic work done, but you definitely do get a sense uh, that there's there's a there's a presence of that, and um, and I think there's a lot of pressure now everywhere uh, because of social media. Yeah, in in Los Angeles in particular. A lot of people are involved in the entertainment industry, and um, whether they're in it or they're trying to get into it, um, appearance is you know very important. An important part of my book is um, where I cite some research out of Scandinavia um, involving older people who, uh, in um, uh, in case histories. The, the the research was was case history work. It was qualitative. Um, this isn't about big numbers of people that they were surveying. These are individuals who were inter- interviewed intensively. And what they found from these people is um, they said, you know, I'm not looking to look 25. Um, what I'm trying to do is preserve a certain way of interacting with other people. And we live in a world that tends to be ageist, and so tends to attach certain beliefs about the appearance of age, like this person looks unhappy or they look angry or they look tired. And because of that, uh, job opportunities may be impacted and social opportunities may be impacted. And so I thought that was that was one of the things that really pushed me to write the book, that a lot of the people that I've interacted with in therapy um, and also the, the people cited in this research we're not talking about wanting to look 25 when they were, you know, 60. They were just trying to remain relevant and active.
0: But it is interesting that, and I'm sure they developed themselves in more than one way, but is that, is that they how they see the main solution?
1: Well, yeah, that's a really important piece. Um, of course, we don't want other people's opinions of us to be um, determinative, of how we treat our body. And yet I wanted to write the book because I suspect, like I'm only you know suspecting here, I've never read anything about this, but my suspicion is that a lot of uh, psychologists like me um, would feel disinclined to write the book that I wrote because they would feel like uh, they don't want to appear to be encouraging it. Yeah, My feeling about it is my purpose in writing it is that I'm respecting what people are choosing to do with their body, because they've made an assessment of um, how the way that they appear has an effect on the life that they are living, mm-hmm. and I think it's important to to respect people's decisions that way. So, in the therapy, we examine it. You know, we look at it carefully and. Uh, I may help them to alter some of the plans that they've made, maybe, but oftentimes it's about um finding a way to come to an acceptance of um what they're doing and 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 develop uh some healthy or or nurture the healthy beliefs that they have about it
0: mm-hmm when we think of the you know the youth or the, the youth when we think about you know the younger generation you know the the, the teens and the early 20s who probably feel more pressure around the stuff because of the amount of social media they face nowadays and the expectation that brings into their life if you were to talk to parents right now about how do you help your children manage this part of life which they're probably the real first generation that's facing it in, in a much more extreme way uh what would be the advice that you'd give in this area
1: it's a really good question. You know, in, in talking uh, about um, who this book is directed at with, with other people in, involved in the process of, of um, publishing this book, um, you know, the, what people would tell me is, well, this is mainly a book for old people, right? Mm. Um, and the fact is, there's plenty of research coming out these days um, looking at how many young people, even... Recently, in the in um, Singapore, um, I I was reading an article about um, the issue of liposuction, especially, but other cosmetic procedures in teenagers. Wow! And so it really raises complicated questions. Um, When do when is it right um, to begin doing this work? But the answer, uh, one answer, is definitely that people are doing it. People are choosing to do it, it again. even in their teens, but it's really pretty uh, common for influencers in their 20s and 30s to be making decisions to change certain aspects of the way that they look. Some very famous people, in in writing the book, I interviewed cosmetic surgeons, uh, just to get more background, Um, and I learned a lot about the subtle work that um, celebrities again in their 20s and 30s uh, affect their appearance, um, their their faces in particular, but also liposuction is you know very common, as I said. Um, so so what advice would I give to a parent? Uh, I think y- you have to you have to be careful with this stuff. You have to be, um, I would suggest that uh, it'd be good for that teenager to talk with a mental health professional, to examine what's happening that's um, causing them to want to change a part of themselves. This gets very complicated and very political and very controversial mm-hmm. these days around the trans issue. Yep. Um, uh, so you can imagine it's it's about, again, compassion, self-compassion, mindfulness, you know, just uh, trying to take a breath and uh, examine the plan and examine what's motivating the desire.
0: Mm, it, 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 we, we we live in interesting times, don't we? You know, like it, it's funny. You know, you talk about the kind of the tension in America right now a little bit earlier with you, like you know the family stuff, and um, uh, it's interesting watching from a, a Kiwi's perspective, kind of seeing um, just the, the 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 delicate nature certain people are you know that that, the tightrope it's almost people have to walk down right now it's almost that takes up so much of our presence and how we have to live our life um and it's you know i I always think you know what's the best use of your mind space you know (laughs) uh, it, it can definitely be pretty challenging for a lot of people out there right now isn't it
1: yeah it really is and it is i what i think of when i think of what you said it's an interesting time i think of the contradictions you know um there's so much pressure I think, in part, because of social media, to not make a mistake, to not misstep, to not seem bigoted or um, you know prejudiced in some way, and yet um, I've done some reading in the cosmetic surgery um, world, and you see this other weird kind of thing or contradictory uh, thing that happens, which is, for instance, you know you can walk into a cosmetic surgeon's office and uh, in different places in the world where they specialize, for instance, in, in eye procedures. And the physician would just, you know, come right out and say, so do you want Japanese eyes or do you want Chinese eyes or do you want, you know? Um, and and in other parts of society, we would think, wow, that's that's really racist. And in that doctor's office with that individual of whatever ethnicity, deciding that they want to change the appearance of their eyes, um, it's, you know, perfectly acceptable and considered respectful. So it is sort of contradictory, you know. We want to be affirming the way different people look from different cultures, um, but we also want to be respecting on an individual level. If this person who is from whatever culture wants to change their appearance, you know, should they, if they're of sound mind be able to change it and to change it in the particular ways that they want. And that's where that plastic surgeon would be coming from and saying, you know, yeah, I can give you an eye that looks like, you know, this culture or that culture, whatever you want.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, Again, we live in fascinating times, don't we? Hey, um, so if people want to get your book or people want to follow you or, or work with you, where do they go?
1: Thanks. Uh, so it's uh, DR for doctor and then Alan Goodwin uh, on um, – on uh, TikTok and Instagram and um, YouTube. And um, my website is also uh, drallangoodwin.com. Uh, and yeah. I, I- Is your book on your I'm
0: just on your website right now. Where would they go to get your book?
1: Uh, on- yeah, you know, we've got to get a book page up on the website. Okay. And I think it is not yet because the book is coming out um, in November this month. Okay. But okay. again, the title is Saving Face Without Losing Your Mind maintain, um, bringing mindfulness to your cosmetic procedure. And um, it'll be most likely in the middle of November is when it's going to come out. And it really is directed at at coping with all sorts of changes in life. There's a heavy mindfulness component. And I talk a lot in the book about how we use therapy. Um, the context is for um, coping with all of the stresses that surround Uh, deciding uh, on a cosmetic procedure, but really I intended the book to be a tool for anybody who is, you know, uh, wrestling with the realities of change. And so the people who have read it have said, you know, really, I learned a lot about psychotherapy in the book. And I was really glad to hear that. I meant to communicate that.
0: I've got a question for you. I've got a client I work with who's obese um, obese, and, uh, you know, quite a bit overweight. And Works hard, but has never really lost the, you know, never really got to the place she needs to get to, and uh, she, she's always fighting between should I get the operation or not. Would this book be good for someone like her?
1: I think so. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I, you know, I only hesitated a, a second just now because, um, you know, you can imagine when you're writing a book like this, um, you edit out a lot of different choices. You have to make choices. Yeah, and I had examples of stories of um, people who um, were uh, going through this process that you're describing your um, client going through. And, you know, of course you can't, you can't tell that person whether they're going to be happy with it. Um, But what's tends to be helpful, I think, is to let the person know there are, you know, many, many people who have had those procedures and um, felt like um, any of the disadvantages that they've experienced have been outweighed by the benefits. There are people who feel differently about it, though, and the success rate is really dependent on the procedure um, and also the individual. Um, some procedures have a lot um, higher uh, I think they I think they look at five year uh, success rates because most people lose a bunch of weight soon after the procedure. But the question is, you know, three and four and five years later, is it maintained? Um, but, you know, I know people uh, personally, who, you know, would have said they would absolutely um, uh, do the procedure again, because it, it changed their life. So I don't mean to be a, a, a shill, I don't mean to be yeah. selling Procedures is just the reality for some people, and the reason I think it's—I'm so glad you asked it—is because from a psychological perspective, many of those people didn't have the procedure because they shamed themselves for their weight. They said, "You know, if if I were just um, not so lazy or not so uh, unmotivated or not so whatever, um, I would just do it. I would just lose the weight." I'm not one of those people who you know, has to have a procedure in order to lose the weight. So they shame themselves for it.
0: What's well, also interesting as well, one th- I I have worked with a couple of people who have had the operation and luckily for them, because you talked earlier about how um, sometimes it can lead to them just look, you know, going to alcohol or, or you know, actually just using another negative way or a damaging way to kind of deal with the thing that they really need to be dealing with. But two of the people I can think of right now, they, they basically said by getting the surgery, it made them realize it was never really about the food. It was actually this bigger thing that they needed to work on. One of the girls had lost a baby, uh, you know, pretty young, you know, maybe, I can't remember exactly the age, but they lost a child very young. And she just had never dealt with that. And once she had the surgery, she just realized, oh, as creepers, I actually need to deal with this thing. And, and then she was able to. And so as much as she was a much physical, healthier person, Mentally, she actually worked through the real stuff that she probably needed to be working through. And that's where, so working with someone like you would ultimately be helping, you know, again, working on the right thing is probably the most important thing, isn't it?
1: I think so. I mean, if what what I say to people is, I think it's helpful to look at food like any other compulsive behavior, if it's a problem, if you think about it, whether it's gambling or sex or a drug or food or Uh, anything that you do compulsively there's a trip component to it they are all trippy in other words they're all sort of taking us away Uh, like going okay okay Okay. Okay. so it's an escape kind of thing yeah i don't use escape i use leave because escape tends to activate people's um sense of being um criticized as you know cowardly you know yeah but 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 we we leave, we go on a trip to get away. And you know, of course, anytime you go somewhere, like to that that place where, you know, you go when you eat a jelly donut or when you take the drug of choice or when you gamble and you're real excited, you know, you're leaving somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so in the therapy, what we're looking at is, you know, what were you leaving? And what you gave is a really good example of it, that pain that can be nascent and not even looked at because um. It's you know clouded over by you know not staying present enough to be willing to look at it.
0: It's funny you say this because I play in a band, um, and we had our album release party a couple months ago. And there's a guy who's been really supportive of our band. He's kind of come to every one of our gigs, and I'm pretty sure he's a pretty high drug user and a big drinker. Um, and he just stands here and there's just no presence. There's no life, you know. And um, I just, I, I and I, I know I'm, I know I'm to say hello to. I don't know him that well, um, but and I just, I just thought, wow, there's you know that kind of idea of taking a trip is like he's he's so disconnected from his life because he's so using these stimulants just to kind of exist and it was like I, again i can't be too, too judgmental i don't know the guy but i just it was just a presence i because i don't really hang around I'm, I'm in fitness you don't really hang around druggies and stuff like that so yeah and, and i think i was got i have a drug history so I, probably, I was probably that guy when i was younger um but just this presence of him was just this someone who's actually not even present in any way, shape or form in his life. Um, It was just, yeah, it was just, as you were talking about that, he kind of came to my mind.
1: Yeah. And you're also not totally present with yourself, right? Yeah. You're you're leaving. uh, If I leave right now, I'm not only leaving you, I'm leaving my experience of being with you, me with you. Mm. And so there's a Mm. rejection of you. There's a rejection of me. There's a rejection of me and you, you know? Yeah. Wow. So all that stuff can be (laughs) unpacked if the therapy is effective.
0: Well, here's, here's the problem. What about the cost? Because, you know, like for someone like you, I'm, you know, I'm sure you charge a fair amount, and I'm sure you're brilliant at what you do. But for unfortunately, a lot of people who don't have the resource, um, what, what about people like that?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's really unfortunate. You know, different societies, I think you know, um, uh, fund this service differently. Yeah. I mean, I, part of my practice is a Medicare practice. And so... Okay. Um, I, I, I love that. I see people who are um, in on Medicare because of disability or because of age, and it's a whole different kind of population I get to work with. Um, but yeah, you know, well, I think a good thing to say to encourage people is um, no psychologist is going to be helpful to everyone that they meet. Um, it's, it's always to some extent about, you know, a chemical, uh, compound, you know, I am a chemical. You're a chemical. When we mix, we're going to create something, and either it will be, you know, a, a positive thing, or it, it won't be a constructive thing. And and so you can find those chemicals that you combine with in a really positive way in trainees. If you go to um, a clinic um, and people are training, they're supervised, and they may be, you know, very. Um, they, they may have great raw talent and they may have great uh, supervisory help and you may get, you know, really super effective psychotherapy. And on the other hand, you may meet with someone who's really experienced and it won't be, you know, uh, uh, successful connection. So it's always to some extent uncertain, but, um, so you have to be open to, you know, sort of shopping, but uh, in terms of cost, I would just want to encourage people to um, be open to working with, you know, whoever you can find because you you never know where you're going to find uh, that person. Who's really going to be a, a great resource for you.
0: And I think there's one other thing on top of that as well, is that kind of the idea of shopping because I, um, some people have one bad experience with someone that, you know, a therapist or something who's trying to help them and they close the door to the idea of that they could help. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like all things, you know, not every shoe is going to fit every foot. And so it's that kind of thing that do shop around, do, kind of spend some time trying to find a good fit for you because yeah, not everyone's going to be perfect. Are they?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're all, it's our theoretical orientation is what we call it. And it's a function of our personality, but also of, you know, our philosophy as a professional, what kind of work we do. And yeah, it's, there's um, an, an infinite uh, number of uh, options. Once you start looking for professionals and also, um there isn't only one way that's going to work for you. So don't feel like you have to find the person that you feel most comfortable with and safe with from the minute you meet them. In fact, I I had a client recently who um it's really funny. And in the first session, in the first session, she said, Yeah, I saw your videos online and you know, I thought I thought you looked a little weird, but I'll give <laughs> you <to> cry. <laughs> <It's> a cry. <lot. laughs> Yeah. And I told, I told the person that recently and they said, no, I didn't say weird. I mean, you just
0: look very serious. <laughs> <laughs> I have a funny story. I've, I've written a couple of books myself. And there was a guy who came up to at the gym and cause he was a pretty high level lawyer and he was a pretty intelligent guy. And I just didn't think he thought fitness professionals were that intelligent. He goes, that, he comes up, he goes, have you written that book? I'm like, yeah, I wrote the book. He goes, but did you actually write it? And I was like, yeah, I wrote it. <laughs> well i'm impressed i think it's a bit of a backhanded compliment but we take it
1: (laughs) yeah yeah funny hey well
0: thank you so much for your time so your website is again your website is
1: uh dr for doctor no period after it and then my name is alan a-l-a-n last name is goodwin g-o-o-d-w-i-n dr alan goodwin.com
0: okay i'll put a link to it in the show notes guys thank you so much for coming on the show it's been really interesting having a discussion and keep up the good work you're doing
1: Thanks, Bevan. It's really, really nice meeting you. Thanks a lot.
0: Hopefully you enjoyed those uh, segments of the show. I'll put the link to Dr. Alan Goodwin's website where you can get his book. Um, yeah, hopefully you enjoyed them. We will be back next week. Next week we've got Gordo on the show. Really looking to look, talk forward to talking to Gordo. We haven't had him on the show for a long time and he's always such an insightful man. He's such a deep thinker, isn't he? So uh, next week that will be back on the show. Um, let's just say a big thank you to our patrons. First of all, Paul, Dark Playaris, Yoda. We've got Roger, the Dodge Dooley and Mikey, Myth, Big Miss, Uh, if you want to become a patron go to www.iamtalk.me. if you want to get the show email to you at the same place we haven't actually had any new patrons recently so if you want to become a patron please support the show we try to do great work each week and you're support, really, is really, really important. If you want some coaching, coachjohnnewson.com, epiccamp.com, my website, if you enjoy what I've done today and you enjoy my podcast or you enjoy that type of podcast, check out my podcast, go to Bevan James Isles or look up the Bevan James Isles Show in your podcatcher. Any cool age group of the week websites, other feedback, just email us at imtalkpodcasts at gmail.com. That's pretty much the show this week. Again, our love and thoughts go out to John and his family. Send that appreciation to the people in your world this week and uh, we'll be back what is it? I'm Russ, I'm Indone, train smart, train hard, Kia Kaha.